Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. This particular uh, story and many others, but this one in particular requires people like you got to do the work. You have to know about this other stuff in order to be able to talk about this in a way that does it justice. And I understand that people aren't ready to do that. Uh, And so it's just been so frustrating to watch this happen. You know, a lot of times, Jason, it seems like people, whenever they see a situation going on with an athlete or said athlete, you can replace Simone Biles with any athlete, LeBron James, any athlete. If that athlete is going through something, people tend to, and it's not not for a fault, it's just natural, like people tend to compare their own situation to what's going on with that athlete. Some people have control over their emotions. I don't. I was trying to find any way to escape. I want the story out there. Like, what happened? Go frame by frame. That was a clip from the new five-part Netflix docuseries, Untold, which brings fresh eyes to various epic tales from sports. One of those tales is the infamous Malice at the Palace, a night that no one could forget when a melee between the Pistons and the Pacers spilled into the uh, stands. One of the players at the center of the brawl was Pacers forward Jermaine O'Neal. It's featured uh, centrally in the in the episode. He talks in detail about that night in episode one and joins us now. Jermaine O'Neal, welcome to Take Line. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jermaine, one, one of the, the uh, document, uh, the episode closes with uh, Stephen Jackson yourself saying, man, I don't want to talk about this. Anymore. I'm done. I'm done talking about this. So I'm, thank you for uh, for talking about it uh, one more time. <laughs> um, did you sense, obviously, at that time, the Pacers and the Pistons were, were uh, big time rivals. Um, but did you was there a point before it ha- before everything kind of occurred where you sensed that the the atmosphere was just a little bit different? Well, honestly, you know, back then everything was super intense. Like you know, rivalries were real. Um, friendships were put aside. Um, you can never people. That's one thing people don't realize. Like half of us on the Pistons and the Pacers actually were friends, right? And yeah. so, but you couldn't tell because it didn't matter, right? We had a job to do. We had a job description that we had to fulfill on every single night. And we knew that we were in each other's way to get to the ultimate goal. And that was, um, you know, that was that was something that fed into, you know, cities. Right. They came to Indianapolis and it was a hard place for them to play. Being in Detroit was a hard place for us to play. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you're going to have to I have so many questions. I'm gonna like, as you know, I'm an athlete and I I feel like if I saw one of my teammates run into the stands. Yeah, like I. Malice in the palace. So what was your thoughts when you saw Meta run into the stands? Like, what's the first thought that went into your head? Well, let me let me say this first. You know, one of the things, because that's, that's a very good, very good question. <laughs> I got I got I got to say thank you to Netflix for allowing this vision to be a part of an incredible 
you know, a series of docs, the um, Way Brothers, uh, Floyd Rust, the director. Uh, I've been trying to do this for 10 years and I wanted to mm. tell a story, not again, not to the avid basketball fan, but to the person that I'm actually seeing in boardrooms and, and business deals that are asking me about this, but are not NBA yeah. fans, right? And so, you know, it was important for me to be able to tell a story um, that came from, you know, the, the, the people's mouth that was involved. Uh, and it was difficult to get everybody there that we've got in this doc, but it was, it was something um, that was important to me because we took a lot of heat from that, right? And, oh, yeah. and I, I'm, I'm, I'm get to your question, um, but it was important too because it became a cultural issue. Um, yeah. if, you, if you hit a doc, like people are really, really saying crazy things. Some of the most respected people in, in media and that I respect, you know, were just taking jabs and wasn't doing the very thing that put them in that position. And that was getting information, real information, right? It was a quick to judgment scenario. And to appoint it, you know, allow people to take jabs at us, you know, talk about hip hop, talk about braids, talk about tattoos. And that was a problem for me. But I had to make sure I said that because that, that sits close to my heart because we're still living it 17 years later as, you know, people asking about this stuff all the time and it's anniversaries for whatever reason. And I'm like, man, just, let's just let's create a doc, tell a story, and then we can move on with our lives. But back to watching Ron, first of all, I, I couldn't, it was, it was a situation where you saw it coming. Right. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I said we had just beat the hell out of the Pistons on national television, we knew that was our year. Right. We knew we were better than those guys. They had, and they'd have phenomenally, phenomenal, you know, team. And they had a lot of, you know, just coming off a championship. So they had that pedigree. So we knew it was going to be difficult, but we knew it was our time. So when when Ben started throwing all of the armbands, you know, already in yeah. a tough environment. Right. In Detroit. Right. Tough environment. Yeah. We started seeing people get riled up. So we're standing there, we're looking around and then you see little things starting to be thrown. Right. So that's another thing people didn't talk about. Right. It's like little things started to be thrown because if we are out and our energy is running to the crowd and we're like this and, you know, telling them to do yell and scream, the fans typically do what we ask them to do. Right. And so they were mimicking what Ben, you know, Ben was doing. And, you know, he he threw it. He kept throwing the armbands. And this guy, I don't like to really say his name too much because he still has a special place, you know, uh, in my dislike um, part of my <laughs> to this life. Day? So, to this day? Well, I, I don't think he's re- regretful for what he did, right? And so I think we're all a little bit more mature. Um, but he should, he, he was, instead of being really an ass about it, he probably should have been in some sort of sport because his his aim was impeccable for him to even hit him with that cup. <laughs> it was <laughs> like he, I mean, it was <laughs> like the none of the liquid came out of the cup until it hit him. Like it was it was incredible. It was uncanny the way that cup came down. He definitely chose his decision on occupation was definitely off. He had, you know, and, and, and I think now, honestly, knowing what I know about Ron and how he handled pressure. Right. And I think it's important for you guys to know we, when we did this doc, we didn't record it together. So we did it all separately. Right. And so I, the first time I saw what he said was when they gave me the first you know, rough cut of it. 
And I never knew how he handled pressure. Like I've never heard him talk about that. Right. Because mental health back then wasn't a real thing. It was like the death of a, of a career. If people thought that you were crazy. Right. And so to hear him talk about the five count, right. And how he dealt with that, that it all made sense to me versus now when I, you know, when you think about him running in the stands, he was already to a point of erupting, you know, literally. And so watching him run into the stands kind of threw me for a loop, but watching everybody else run towards us is what really got me going. You mentioned uh, the way some of the most respected figures in in news media really were talking about this incident from Bob Costas to everybody on CNN on down. You know, there was a, uh, I mean, I'll never forget the weeks following this, but it was that moment played into a very specific, irrational fear in this country of, of, you know, black violence against white people. And it just snowballed to the point where uh, people were calling you thugs. Bob Costas was calling you thugs. And it seemed like, and you mentioned this in the, in the doc that like, there was no platform, no way for y'all to put out your perspective to say, this is what happened to us. This is what we were seeing. Like, we'll go through it and see, see it from our perspective. There was no opportunity to do that. Um, and in fact, in the wake of that, uh, you know, the, the NBA and David Stern put in there uh, the dress code, dress code rules, which seemed directly aimed at tamping down this kind of perception of the league as too black, too influenced by hip hop, et cetera. Um, what were those days like where you just couldn't, It, you know, I'm, I'm sure you had a lot of people advising you at that time. Uh, were they telling you just don't say anything at that time? And And what would you like to say now about what was said during those weeks? Well, one, we couldn't, right? I think the thing that people yeah. don't realize, you know, everything from, you know, this this whole process went on seven to 10 years. Like literally like the Crazy. final thing on this happened 10 years later, right? And so, um, you know, we basically had a muzzle, uh, a muzzle on us because we had not only all the criminal stuff that we had to go through, which took a long time, but we had civil and civil was the killer. Right. Because now people are suing you. So you have to be careful in what you say and go through this process. And at the same time, while a narrative is being created on you, that isn't really the truth. Right. You know, everything, all the clips of the punching. Right. You know, you see all of that, but you don't see you don't see the guy grabbing me around my neck. Like literally before you saw me slide over there for the punch, I had just got a guy that went up behind my neck and grabbed me and I, I throw him on the table. I look to my left and I see Anthony Johnson. So if you go back and look at the clip, you see Anthony Johnson in the brown suit, who's my teammate, had a broken hand. He's on the floor. The Haddad dude is actually standing over him, right? And so I run over there and I hit him, right? And at that point, it's about leadership, right? In a situation where you can't even believe that, wait, you got on the NBA jersey and now you're in here fighting for your life because, yeah, you know, They've blocked all of the exits and it's not a police in the building. Right. So, you know, it, it's one of those things that was tough for me, honestly, because it opened not only me, Steve and Ron up for criticism, but it, the league that I care about so much. Right. That gave me an opportunity to live a dream. You know, the Pacers, right, gave me an opportunity to be the player that I was, you know, obviously Portland drafted me, but Pacers gave me an opportunity to create a footprint. And I'm just watching people just culturally 
just gut us. And we're being told you cannot say anything. Right. And so, you know, this narrative, it was almost like a it became a part of our body armor. Right. Now we're wearing this thing every day, year over year over year over year. And it's becoming a real conversation that, to be quite honest, shouldn't have been. Now, I did understand that the league has a bottom line number that they have to get to. I understood that. Right. I understood it was a penalty to pay for anything. But to the level that we had to pay or at least from my perspective, had to pay, I was not okay with that, especially when I took the NBA to court and won. Did, People did don't know about an that. Apology? Did, yeah. did, did you ever receive any apologies, basically, after you had won? I did not. I did not. And I understood why. I understood why, yeah. because it's a business. And again, uh, the NBA is, is a special place. It's, it's a very special place. And uh, I don't even to this point today, I don't feel like I need an apology because I understand it. Uh, I have the right now to to right the wrongs by putting the the, the dock out. And that's that's kind of my OK ego. And then if you, if you choose to come to a conclusion now, you have, at least you have the real information. No, I like that. And something else that kind of gets lost in the story is that the season ended up being Reggie Miller's last season. And you especially had been vocal about winning a championship in Indiana. So as you reflect on this, what are your thoughts about Reggie and yourself not being able to, to get that ring? Special. Reggie's, Reggie's always been special to me. Um, to know how sports work, to know how players work, every player that's on the team ain't really for everybody. Right. And, you know, in a situation where, where, where Reggie was coming to the end of his career uh, and just coming off of it, you know, basically three years before that off of NBA finals and allow me to come in as a base, a basically unproven player, he could have easily said, not nah, if, if you bring him in, trade me, but he didn't. Right. And he had a conversation with me and said, I'm gonna let you be whatever you want to be as long as you work for it. And that meant the world to me. Um, and to be put in that situation, um, it was so bad. And I guarantee if you ask Reggie, Reggie probably had two more years to play. Like literally, like two more really good years to play. But the how everything was being dissected. And when I tell you, we lived this, right, in our own cities. Um, and everything becoming more race than actual facts, right? That was a problem. And I don't think Reggie wanted to, well, matter of fact, I know Reggie didn't want to have to deal with that, those, those questions and that, that level of, of attention that has now become negative attention and it's not even about the game anymore. Untold premieres on Netflix on August 10th. The first episode is Malice in the Palace. Jermaine, thank you for talking to us today. Thanks, Jermaine. Thanks for having me. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.
On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Last week, after Simone Biles withdrew from several Olympic events, the sports media, various people on social media uh, all had an opinion and descended into a chaotic conversation about uh, Ms. Biles' legacy in sport. There were some, I think, pretty unfair comparisons across the board to uh, Michael Jordan, to other athletes, as well as some discussions about athletes. Um, mental health within the context of other um, athlete-driven mental health conversations that have been taking place recently. Uh, we should note that it was announced um, just today that uh, Simone will compete in the balance beam final on Tuesday. Uh, but I think one of the problems we saw last week was how the discussions around Simone uh, were framed. Renee, I have some thoughts on how we need to change the narrative around these types of stories. Um, so they don't just become basic sports discussions. Uh, and I'm sure you do as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with Simone Biles' case, it was very interesting because the story, it was a slow roll, right? It was the first yeah. she's opting out and no one had right. an understanding of why. So we got to see everyone's unfiltered thoughts. We got to see, oh no, is this another Naomi Osaka situation? What's going on? We're getting tired of this. Athletes aren't like they used to be. Whatever happened to the mama mentality? We started to see all this kind of of language when before we knew about the twisties like and in and, and full disclosure yeah. i didn't know anything about the twisties until i found out about the twisties from right. simone Biles. but the real problem and i think it's kind of hitting on what you're saying is how we address situations going on with athletes that we've maybe never seen before how do we address yeah. situations going on with athletes that maybe we just don't even know because the everyday casual fan they have no idea about a lot of things like Okay, we didn't know the twisties, but a lot of casual fans don't necessarily know if somebody has a bone bruise. What's the timeline or what can a person fight through? What's the norm? They're just not in the locker rooms. They don't see it all the time. So how we address yeah. athletes and maybe the things that we don't know or understand going on with those athletes, I think that's the real thing that that that's happening now. Even with the Naomi Osaka, when she says mental health, people are like, well, what actually is going on in your life that makes you not be able to perform? And it's like, none of your business, but it's my mental health. Like people are having a hard time with the not knowing and with the, okay, well, if this athlete is just going to do their own thing, then like fans are almost getting mad. Like, well, then I don't yeah. have to watch her. I don't have to be a fan if they don't want to compete. And it's like, no, they're taking care of themselves, first of all. But this is this yes. is just a new world, basically, that we're in. And I don't know if the media nor fans know how to handle it, Jason. Yeah, I think even within the kind of like broader conversation that has just come to the forefront of, of kind of like sports media discourse recently about athlete mental health, even within even in the context of that conversation, I think I think Simone Biles uh the conversation about her is is different because the thing the thing that got to me was when people were like, "Oh, um, Michael Jordan 
Michael Jordan never quit for his mental health, which, you know, uh, he quit the sport for two whole years to go play baseball because he was traumatized after the murder of his father. When you point this out to people, they then say, oh, but he didn't do it in the middle of a game. He didn't do it in the middle of game six against the Suns. Uh, he was under contract, though, right? I mean, so what really gets me about that is what a tremendous like disservice it does to the things she's been through. As many will know, uh, Simone and over 100 uh, young women were uh, sexually abused by Larry Nasser, the team doctor. Um all of this was covered up by the USOPC, the USAG for years. It was brought to the forefront. People were informed about it. They didn't kick it up to the authorities. It wasn't until uh, an athlete actually pressed charges uh, that uh, that Nasser's downfall was triggered. But this, the, these allegations were buried by the people uh, that were supposed to protect all these athletes. While that was going on, she won. Uh, you know, like 19 world medals, uh, six Olympic medals, including four gold medals. Um, and in that context, like to put that ordeal in the context of an athlete, like overcoming an obstacle is actually like, that's gross. Sick. You know what I mean? Like to no, put that sick. in the context, to put that in the context of Michael Jordan having the flu uh, is just so fucked up. And I think the thing that really frustrated me the most was, uh, number one, like, of course, it, if she could have, if she quit at any point in the past, forget now, forget, uh, you know, during the Olympics, she owed nobody anything after what she's been through. Um, but the fact that during this whole time where she's like 16, 17, 18 years old and there is no like uh, players union for for gymnasts, you know what I mean? There's no protection. All the people that were supposed to protect her were actively covering this up. During that time, the thing that all those women were told was like, we don't believe you. And so therefore we're going to move on from this. And now when Simone says like, I can't go the reaction of so many talking heads, sports fans, et cetera, is like, we don't believe you. What's the reason? We don't believe you. Like someone came at me and was like, yeah, but, but like, this is the Olympics. This is in the middle of the competition. And so I'm like, yeah, she must have a good reason then, right? Right. Like, like why don't we trust that she has a very good reason? Forget the twisties. Like anything else that she's been through is a good enough reason to be like, I don't want to do exactly. this anymore. Because the USOPC, the USAG, these are not like new different organizations now that the Nasser thing happened. Like all that stuff is still ongoing. A lot of those testimonies are still under seal. They didn't just like rip up the entire organization and be like, okay, here's a fresh start. You guys will compete uh, under this whole new organization. She's working for the same organization that covered all this stuff up and she did it and she'd been, uh, she's been straightforward about this. She competed this year because she felt like there needed to be a survivor on the team so they couldn't cover this up. They couldn't actively cover up what happened, couldn't just move on from it. In the light of all that, like you can't talk about this like it's Michael Jordan game seven or any other athlete winning a Super Bowl or something. It's just completely different. Um, and it just is so frustrating. And, you know, and like, I don't actually, I actually don't blame a lot of the people like on social media who are like, who don't know how to talk about this because this requires a whole new language to talk about. This is entirely like for most people, 
sports is entertainment. They work an eight, nine, 10, 12 hour shift delivering packages or whatever. And they come home and they just want to watch the Olympics and not think about stuff where this particular uh, story and many others, but this one in particular requires people like you got to do the work. You have to know about this other stuff in order to be able to talk about this in a way that does it justice. And I understand that people aren't ready to do that. Uh, And so it's just been so frustrating to watch this happen. You know, a lot of times, Jason, it seems like people, whenever they see a situation going on with an athlete or said athlete, you can replace Simone Biles with any athlete, LeBron James, any athlete. If that athlete is going through something, people tend to, and it's not not for a fault, it's just natural. Like people tend to compare their own situation to what's going on with that athlete. So somebody might see what a very rich athlete is going through and be like, oh, well, I mean, I have to work 12-hour shifts while raising four kids. I I wish I was doing that. I wish I could be doing that right now. Yeah. Yeah, and we have to stop doing that. We have to stop looking at other people's situations through our lens. Like, if we always look at everyone's situation through our own lens, of course we're all going to be like, oh, yeah, give me this or let this happen to me or not. And I'm not talking about the abuse. I'm just talking about in general when we start to talk about mental health when it comes to athletes. A lot of times it almost gets brushed away because— People look at their circumstances in their everyday lives and be like, well, at least they have this. But when you look at what's going on with Simone Biles, the pressure that the world has, I mean, I I said Twitter gave her her own emoji. Why? Because she was the most talked about athlete going into the Olympics. So you have to add in on that worldwide USA pressure is there. She's the most talked about athlete. It's a fact. Twitter already put it out. So then you add on top of that, that it's a known thing, Jason, you said it. We're here. I'm here because I want to make sure that there's a survivor, that somebody has to be held accountable. A lot of people may not know, because like you said, to do the work, they turned down like a 200 million something dollar settlement because they wanted to understand. They wanted people to understand. They wanted to come out. Yes, they wanted the details to come out. Look, Ali Reisman, this past weekend, I was on um, Bob Costas' new show, Back on the record. Ali Reisman was also on that show and she spoke about it. She said, we turned down that money because we want to know who knew what and when did they know it? The gymnasts want answers. And so, and, and even listening to her speak, she talked about when she talks about what happened with them for sometimes days or even weeks, she's almost just like unmanageable in a sense of she can't, it's hard for her to deal with to talk about that. So just hearing... Allie talk about it's hard for her to even function in everyday life when she talks about this situation. Think about what Simone Bowles is dealing with, again, being the most talked about Olympian, also dealing with the twisties. And this is something that people need to just think of this as like a physical injury in sports. If, If you can't comprehend why she can't compete, just think of it as a torn ACL or or a pulled right. something. Like you just have to get your mind to shift to this is a physical problem. Even though you know she could come back from it, it's physical in a sense of she could really hurt herself and it's not okay. I mean, she even made the statement. Yes. Simone made the statement. If you look at the pictures in my eyes, you can see how confused I am as to where I am in the air. So. We already are dealing with the trauma of what's happened in the past. You're dealing with the pressure of being the most talked about Olympian, like period. And then you're dealing with an injury to yourself. That's a lot. And people don't know how to process that other than saying, ah, she can fight through it or because that's our only, you know, like that's that takes 
psychology. That takes other things. That takes work, as you put it, Jason. And, and it's not for no fault of anyone else. We've never given athletes any time. We've never given athletes effort. It's always been, are you healthy? Okay, play. Are yeah. you not healthy? Okay, you don't play. We never asked, are you mentally healthy? Are you physically healthy? It's, are you healthy? Go play. And so I just think we're just seeing a shift in the tides. I mean, if you just look at it, I ho- I, I'm, it's, I have to just say, it's so impressive for all of those women. We talked about it. It was over 100 women to turn down $200 million, even if you had to split it between the 100 plus mm-hmm. women, that's a lot of money. But to know that this could continue, that they're still working for the same organization, the same people that they might not have enabled it, but you knew about it and you didn't stop it. That's, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just such a messy situation. USA Gymnastics, after this Olympics, I mean, honestly, it should have been before this Olympics because we were talking about, they wanted to sweep it under the rug for the 2016 Olympics. And here we are at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics that's really happening in 2021, which is a whole nother year and it's still not being resolved. So everyone needs to keep being loud about USA Gymnastics. We need to keep praising the women for their bravery, but we need to, like, we need to, as a general population, not let this go until they clean house. They got to clean it up over there. That's disgusting. They got to completely tear it up. Um, it, it is absolutely insane. And then think about, you know, a, a lot of these women have talked about that the Olympics is for them, not necessarily a time of celebration. It's when all those memories and all those things are brought back up. So uh, they're dealing with a pressure that no one can understand and that no one can really uh, possibly try and uh, try and put themselves in the middle of uh, unless they've been through something similar to that. And everything that they have done uh, to this point makes them really beyond any kind of like sports criticism. Like that's, it's just insane to me to be like, Oh, you, uh, how could you do this? She's forget like, she's already won 25 medals worlds plus Olympics. Like Like who does that? that, Yeah. Like (laughs) what what more does she need to do? And even if she hadn't won those, right. Even the girls who didn't compete beyond criticism to be like, they don't want to play anymore. And I think you're exactly right. You said something, um, that is that I think about all the time. If you if she said, "Oh my uh, my Achilles is sore," people wouldn't even question it, not wouldn't even for a second. Eye. But you wouldn't bat an eye. But you say, uh, "But it's something to do with uh, the brain, something to do with mental health." And all of a sudden, everybody is an expert and says, "Well, why can't you just fight through it? Why can't you just fight through it?" And I think in a in a in a really kind of sad way, it's a reflection on how bad we all are, we are as a country about dealing with our own like mental health. You know what I mean? Like that, that is the message that we, that we get all the time is like, oh, you're just sad. Just push through it. No, like that's not, (laughs) that's not fair. You should try to make yourself happy in your everyday life. But Jason, a lot of people may not be happy in their everyday life. So they're like, look, I deal with sadness all the time. That's what I was trying to say about the lens. Like just because you're dealing with something, it doesn't make it okay that you're not happy either. You know, like that, that's the thing. Like misery, the, the, the statement misery loves company. Yeah. Let's like, let's change that. Let's get out of that because just because you might be sad doesn't mean that they should have to fight through their sadness. Like they might need help. And speaking of that, on the, that idea, can we stop silver shaming people? Like I, I just, that's a great, yeah. like, silver is a great metal. <laughs> you know, who 
Has anybody out there want to go win an Olympic any medal? You know what I mean? You know, I start seeing stuff about. Oh, well, we'll settle for the silver and this. And we had to settle for bronze. And I'm like, do you guys know that this is a competition of the greatest athletes in the entire world? And if you make that podium, that means you're the top three at that event. Yes, baby, you did that. And we all need to be acting like Raven Saunders and turning up and twerking (laughs) and getting our medals and being happy. Like that is, we have to start celebrating more than we just kind of condemn is what I would just say. Okay, so Jason, happy free agency week in the NBA. The rumors all have already started and are apparently <laughs> some unofficial trades have happened and I'm putting unofficial in air quotes unofficial, because right. yeah, they're unofficial, but Russell Westbrook has been a name that we've heard about a lot. He's returning home to LA to become a Laker, joining LeBron and Anthony Davis. The Wizards got Cal Kuzma, Montrez Harrell, KCP, and a draft pick. Again, unofficial trades, but what are your thoughts out there, you know, about the Brody joining the Lake Show? I mean, I just, I'm just going to throw this out there. I can't wait to see the tunnel walks. I mean, his fashion king is coming to L.A. I can only yeah. imagine what that's going to look like. But what are your thoughts on the trades unofficially? Well, my first thought is, of course, that tampering has never happened, that that all of these all of these deals, you know, when a deal is announced during the free agency period and then as soon as the the, the clock ticks over and free agency can com- can commence and then all of a sudden it's announced that like such and such deal has happened and the contract has already been printed and already been signed and already been delivered. Uh, that it, despite that, there has never been any tampering. Of course, it, Kyle Lowry is is rumored never. to be uh, rumored to be uh, leaning towards going to Miami. Whatever that is, I'm sure Pat Riley has never ever uh, had any discussions with Kyle Lowry, Kyle Lowry's agents, Kyle Lowry's representatives in any way. Of yada, course yada, yada. not. I think of that, course not. Of course not. I think that this is. Uh, I think two things about it. I love Russ. I love that he's going home, basically, to where his basketball journey started, uh, you know, just at both like as a kid and as a, as an athlete at UCLA. Um, I don't if LeBron James is the best shooter on your team, I think that's probably a problem. LeBron's a fine shooter, but like wh- there's a lot of there are spacing issues to be figured out. But I love that Russ is in L.A. I think that's great. Well, Jason, give them time. Free agency just started. Yeah, it just started. <laughs> so I'm assuming that the Lakers have to be on the prowl. I mean, the same way that you know the shooting problems that could occur. Of course, the Lakers management. I assume that since free agency just started today. So since, well, not Monday is today. <laughs> but, but since it just started, I would like to assume that the management team, upper management at the Lake Show are trying to figure out you know, Buddy Buddy was a name that was thrown around a lot. And then when we heard the rush trade happen, it kind of died yeah. down. But I still think that they're going to have to make a play. Again, this is the first day. So we don't know anything yet. So- <laughs> let, me ask, let me ask you this. So, uh, you know, uh, tampering has been such a concern over, over recent seasons uh, as free agents have and their movements have become uh, a prime generator of super teams, right? This is how super teams are assembled, whether it's uh, LeBron and Wade and Bosh joining up as a member of the Heat or any of the various things that have happened later, KD and Kyrie on the the Brooklyn Nets. What can, like, 
obviously it looks bad when all of a sudden it's free agency and then the contract is announced and signed because clearly you y'all have been talking before you should have been. <laughs> but is there actually any way to stop tampering? Like There's from no from way. your perspective as an owner, as an athlete, is there any way that the NBA can make this not happen? There's like no way to stop tampering because you can't stop friendships. So, yeah. Well, you, you know, like if I'm talking to somebody that's my homie and I'm like, yo, man, you need to come over here. Let's just team yeah. up. Let's play together. We could be on the same team. We could have tampering, wine every tampering, night. Tampering, tampering, tampering. <laughs> listen, <laughs> I could talk to the coach right now. What number do you want, my G? Like, I got you. Yeah, right. What number you want? We could already have that figured out for you. Like, that's always right. going to be a thing in sports. I mean, look, Charles Barkley even jokingly, and I, let me say jokingly, said if he had known that people <laughs> would have cared so much about an athlete retiring without getting a championship that he would have joined his friends long ago. He, he he made the joke because we're starting to see the aftermath. The reason I brought Charles Barkley up is right. because it used to not happen. Everybody talks about it in the past, like, yeah, it used to never happen in the past. You were drafted with a team. If you were a superstar, you stayed with that team. But then you got people like a Charles Barkley, and I know he said it jokingly, but that's the problem. That's how super teams become a thing. People don't want their legacy to be, I was the great yes. player without a championship. So if you don't want your legacy to be, I was that great player without a championship, what are you going to do? You're going to call up the homies and be like, our cap space is looking nice. Just talk to yeah. the GM. What you want, yeah. man? We can't do 50. This is, I'm just being real. Like, we can't do 50 million, my guy. But if you come here <laughs> and you take a little bit less and then we go and we get this dude too, who could beat us? Who could beat us? That's how the conversations happen. You know, as speaking of Charles Barkley, if he famously left uh, the Sixers organization because they were not doing it for him, forced his way to the Suns where he then made a finals and was named MVP. I, I think that... Barkley's influence is really important, actually, in this. And I think not talked about enough. All of these players today, Durant, Kyrie, LeBron, Wade, everybody, they grew up watching TNT inside <laughs> the NBA and watching Magic and later Shaq and, and Kenny Smith roast Charles Barkley for not having a ring. Yeah. Week after week after week, game after game, hour upon hour, there's that famous there's that famous clip where they built like a club inside the inside the studio and it was like for champions only and then magic goes ah! in Shaq goes in and, ah! and they left Charles outside they watched you know That's they watched like for yeah for their entire for their entire young lives and you know the message that is unmistakable for, from that if you're an elite NBA star is don't be the one without the ring, right? Bingo. Because this is this is what awaits you, right? Bingo. And I think that while we criticize the super teams for happening, and, and it's fine to say, oh man, I wish it was the way it was, let's also not forget the influence of the way that we talk about sports. If we are going to say, hey, what's going to happen is if you are a great player who doesn't win a championship, we're going to make fun of you for your whole life, <laughs> then... <laughs> Uh, uh, let's acknowledge the role in that Thanks. in motivating these players to not be that person. Nobody wants to be Charles Barkley as great a career as he had. You don't want to be on inside the NBA 10 years from now. Left outside the club. Wade, How you, are you left from outside, outside the club? club. There. You can't even get in. Come on. Like that's, that's, you don't want to be that guy. No, not at all. 
Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. He is one half of the incredible soccer podcast, Men in Blazers, but now he's a New York Times bestselling author. His new book, Reborn in the USA, an Englishman's love letter to his chosen home, is available right now. Roger Bennett, welcome to Take Line. Oh, Renee and Jason, it is a joy to be with you both. Thank you for for being here. It's our it's our honor. Yes, thank you for being here. So, how does an outsider growing up in Liverpool in the 1980s become <laughs> a Chicago Bears fan? Tell me. God, it's funny you ask. I've just written a book about a fairy story. <laughs> you know, it's a there's a long answer and a short answer. I'll give you the medium one, which is Liverpool, <laughs> one of the greatest cities in the world. Although you are in another of those in Atlanta. Um, You're. And then I was just like, oh, my God, 80s Liverpool, though, dark and twisted as the north of England fell apart. Um, and even like the football, it's a city that announced itself to the world through Liverpool and Everton. They were the greatest clubs in Europe. But even back then, I mean, football was a hooligan uh, propel mm. culture. There was unemployment. There was a heroin ep- epidemic. There was very little hope outside of music and football but football was played on muddy pitches by large men who just really wanted to kick the hell out of each other and then get off the field (laughs) for a pie a pint a cigarette and then 1985 1985 the nfl started to broadcast itself in england but it, it wasn't like massive it was tiny on a tiny station an experimental station for an hour a week um, and they, it was just highlights, but of the previous, this is pre-internet. So they, the NFL was confident enough it could put on week old games crushed down into an hour, just all of them on like running montages to like uh, Bonnie Tyler's holding out for a hero or J- or John Paul, <laughs> St. Elmo's fire. I mean, really, John Montana, John Montana would like fling the ball that would go like 45 yards and you'd hear, St. Elmo's fire. And you're, like, and you're like, oh, wait, honestly, if I put my fingers, jam them into an electric socket, I had never seen anything like it. Just so exhilarating. I didn't know what the hell was happening. Flare passes, rushing, safety. It was all just like, oh, my, the cheer leaders bum phillips what there's a man called bum and he's a coach and he's hilarious <laughs> and i was just like oh my god i want this in the face because ultimately 
it was about winning. It wasn't about winning. The New Orleans Saints were like 14 and 0. And they mm. were like, they, I was like, yeah. go and beat up those Atlanta Falcons fans. They're laughing at you. Go and hey, beat them up. Wait a minute. Instead, <laughs> uh, the New Orleans Saints, they just pulled on paper bags over their heads. They're like, yeah, we're the New Orleans Saints. And they drank more light beer and they stuffed their faces with sausage. And I was like, that place, they know how to enjoy themselves. They know how to laugh. And I loved every single second of it. And that, of course, I mean, led me to the Bears for more complicated reasons. But that was just the short story. And that was about seven minutes, oh 23 my gosh. seconds. Wow. You, you write in your book, Reborn in the USA, uh, about how, in addition to these NFL broadcasts, there, there were these nuggets of American culture, you know, heart to heart, uh, Miami Vice, John Hughes movies that captured your imagination. What, what was it about those things that drew you in? You know, so English television was the three biggest soap operas that dominated the airways were were Coronation Street, uh, EastEnders and Brookside. One was working class misery in Manchester. One was working class misery in London. And the other was working class misery in Liverpool. And essentially the, 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 the value <laughs> proposition was... You think your life's crap watching at home? You think your life's miserable? Shut up and watch these people. Their life is really terrible. Now, don't you feel better about your own? And then onto that kind of crashed Dallas, Dynasty, Beverly Hills, 90210, you know, the John Hughes (laughs) movies, where the pro, you know, Dallas and Dynasty was about. Uh, the problems of having so much money, there weren't enough oil wells or mink coats to spend it all on. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, like this notion of aspiration in England, it was like, shut up, don't have dreams. There'll only be shattered right. dreams. Just stay where you are and behave and everything will be, that's your life. And then you die. And then in America, it was like, no, you, this is, this is, this, the, the, you can have joy. You can believe in courage. You can have some confidence. And I was like, oh my God, I want some of that. And, um, <laughs> I, and I that, was, that. That, that was, you know, like run DMC, all of this run DMC, you'd what they would, you know, it was just like human beings who use their mouths as fire hoses, spat out rhymes, you know, the, talked about dreams and then use their mouths and their words to make them true. When you're like 14, 15 and you see, I was like, you can do that. And I like spent, I spent, I spent a whole summer teaching myself how to beatbox, which was really just me spitting on my bedroom mirror. But it was like, it was like, it was like, I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't tell you like, this sounds flip, like the Miami Vice, obviously a show about narcos in, 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 in Miami, but really it was a show that was, let's say animal farmers about horses and cows. Deeper down, Miami Vice is a show aimed at 14 to 15 year old boys who are lost in the world, don't know how to handle themselves. And Don Johnson is saying, be singular, be a man of style, find your own style. Everybody else is wearing the Kevlar and the helmets and the protective stuff. No, you go and meet your destiny dressed in periwinkle, in teal, with your sleeves rolled up, linen pants, (laughs) pleated, no socks and espadrilles. Be yourself at all times. And when you watched American culture from afar... It really did. It, it said, if you are miserable, life can be different. And it, it, was, it, was, like, it was like marrow that really sustained me and allowed me to survive. Well, you talk about that American dream and, and, and you even call American the gold standard for you. And we've seen in the last 18 months or so, our flaws have pretty much our dirty laundry has been aired. Our flaws have been put on Front Street. You know, we had the pandemic, the murder of George Floyd. From someone who has 
such pride in becoming America, American and you talk about it, like how you see America, what's your perspectives on just the social issues of our country right now? Well, I started writing the book when, you know, I grew up with the skyline of Manhattan painting on my bedroom wall as a 12 year old. Mm. I moved to Manhattan um, and that Manhattan was overrun by COVID. You know, the Manhattan I loved, the Manhattan I dreamt about, the Manhattan I looked at every night longingly from afar. And, you know, if you go back to March, April, just the panic, the fear, they're just the incredible unknown. It was Seattle and New York to begin with that were just utterly and completely overrun. Um, and in that moment, you know, when the present is fearful and un deeply uncertain, not just like, oh, my, my life, my job is a bit uncertain, but everybody, everybody, just the uncertainty as grown-ups was was totally effed. I, I, I think it's a natural thing to do when the present is dark to revert to the past. And I did try and go back to happier moments and draw the contours of this idea, the American idea, which is the central one in my life. I mean, I, I, I've acted upon it. I've moved here. I, I've had an American family. I became an American citizen, which is still the greatest day of my life. But the year got worse, as you say, the Black Lives Matter summer, the agony and trauma of that. Um, and then into the toxicity of the 2020 election. Um, and there were times when I, I was writing this book in a manic fever dream that I was like, oh my God, only I would release a love letter to America just as it seems about to completely, uh, completely implode. And I, I'd say this, like my book is about, my book is about a love, a love of America mm. that was born of, from afar. Um, that is, it, the story is a bit more nuanced than I'm making it sound. It's a multi-generational, you know, my great-grandfather dreamt of moving to Chicago when he fled Eastern Europe in the 1900s. Mm. It's in our family's narrative that we ended up in Liverpool by mistake and that was really an American trapped in an English boy's body. But it's about the Ameri <laughs> it's about the American idea as a kid. A child's love mm. is very different than an adult's love. And I think any listener who is in love knows that as an adult, love is bloody hard. I and mean, the object of your love always has strengths and always has weaknesses. And when you are in love as an adult, as opposed to being in a child, a kiddie love, an adult love, you have to bloody work at. You have to accept the object of your love um, as, as, as deeply, deeply flawed. And you know, the, the American idea that shaped my life is very different than the American reality. I, I arrived in Chicago yeah. finally in 1993, and my first job was working in the Robert Taylor homes on the south side of Chicago. And that's a completely different story that I didn't write into the book, but actually engaging with the American reality in one of the, the most, uh, I mean, that was traumatic in its own right, dealing with the, the, what you very kindly called the flaws of America close up. But I did want to hold up <laughs> the notion of the American idea in this book and, and the epigraph of the book, um, which is a funny thing. You use somebody else's words that are so much smarter than all those that you write that followed. And I used the Langston Hughes lines, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be. And I think everybody who reads my book knows the difference between the American idea that's driven me, the American reality. And I think we're all committed to doing everything within our power to closing the gap between the two. Mm. I think one of the things I've been most fascinated by as a, as a sports fan, a soccer fan, an American, a fan of uh, international soccer is the way that um, a lot of the... Uh, uh, the social justice protests that have happened here and the responses to that, those uh, incidents that have occurred here have been adopted by athletes across the world, particularly in, in England and France also. 
And I think this was uh, brought into stark relief uh, when uh, Buki Osaka, Marcus Rashford, Jaden Sancho were um, were racially abused online after missing PKs in the Euro final. Um, what is uh, what is what is your reaction? What 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 is going on with the kind of response to these? Uh, uh, to the to the kneeling by uh, black players in the EPL and and abroad, it, is this seen as like a malign American influence on British culture? Why is there such antipathy to these uh, to these actions? Oh, Jason, you're asking me that on the same day as the U.S. women of. I've uh, yeah, yeah. uh, yeah. lost in the World Cup, which has led to like a bizarre inversion where there's a lot of right wing. I'd say that I think most at yes. this point, right wing trolls who are reveling yeah. in American failure um, in a way that I, I honestly I find so bloody traumatizing. It just makes my heart ache more than I can say. And I, I ride with Team America now. I know my accent makes me sound like I live and die with the English national team. I, I you know, I got I got to be candid. I grew up in Liverpool, and in Liverpool we have a we have a strange relationship with the rest of England, and that we, we really felt shafted. We felt marginalised. You know, Mrs. Thatcher really left us, scapegoated the city, painted the city in the darkest possible fashion. Uh, in the 1980s, to the to, to the uh, to the point that the Liverpool City Council, when I grew up, debated seriously ceding from the rest of Britain um, and becoming wow. becoming the Republic of Liverpool, which I would have loved to have a Liverpool passport would have been so unbelievably <laughs> magic. Didn't happen, but like Liverpool people have a complicated. We, we feel very close to America. You know, the, everything from America used to crash into Liverpool first through the port, which is why the Beatles came to America. Um, yeah, rock and roll came to America. Came from uh, rock, where the Beatles came from Liverpool. Rock and roll hit Liverpool first. We always felt super close to America, and so I, I feel it. Find it deeply traumatic that Americans are rooting against the American national team in the most. I, I think in a most trolley way, probably at this point, but it's still deeply, deeply, um, uh, um, it, it just devastating. And, that, and to watch this English national team look. Football at the end of the day, the the glory of football, the thing that makes football so bloody fascinating, soccer on the global level, is that it is just a mirror. It's a mirror to the societies that surround it for good or for bad. So when France won the World Cup in 1998 with a team that was so mixed and diverse and wonderful, it lifted up to France. Zidane, Algeria, and you've got, you know, from, from all of the former colonies, you've got, they called it the, uh, the, 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 the Black Blanc and Bleu team. Like this, this is the new face of France. And it was joyous to see their faces projected against the Arc de Triomphe. This could be a new France. It was, it would, football can be, give you transcendent moments like that. But football, you know, in the Euros, watching Victor Orban, uh, the Hungarian, essentially at this point, a dictator with uh, his black shirts in attendance yeah. at Hungarian games. Icelandic fans doing the thunderclap, uh, 10,000 of them is a wonderful sight. Viktor Orban's black shirts doing the same thunderclap, slightly yes. more bloody terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Not quite as enjoying. Yeah. And, and that brings us to <laughs> your English national team, which, you know, I, I don't ride with England, but I've got to say, holding that mirror up to society, there's two Englands, two Britons right now, and there's a battle for the future of the nation after Brexit. And um, there's an England of diversity, of, of, of emotional intelligence, of empathy, of human wonder. And I've got to say, you know, football 
15 years ago, elite English footballers were, you know, A-list, celebrity wannabes, champagne mm. VIP room dwelling, buy a Lambo, crash a Lambo into a lamppost, <laughs> laugh at the Lambo crash, go and buy another Lambo. Yeah. That was oh the stereotype God. of footballers. These guys, these guys, Marcus Rashford, you know, uh, Sacco, um, yeah. all of these guys who names that may not mean a lot to your listeners, but they are young, they are black they are deeply intelligent they are outspoken on issues just the greatest issues i'll speak about you know uh, uh, gay rights they'll speak about uh, uh, the uh, racism in the country they'll speak about mental uh, uh, the, the challenges of depression in in everyday life and and to watch them i watched that i was like that i want that to be the face diverse intelligent open vulnerable humanly well i want that to be the face of future England. And as one of them said, when they finally lost like Sisyphus in the final um, against yeah. Italy, one of them said, you cheer for us when we're winning. But the second, and there was, uh, you know, second, these three young lads, bloody brave as hell to, you, to go and take a penalty in a shootout. And Americans are like, it's like a free throw. Why is, what's the big deal? They're professionals. It's like a free throw where you have to walk 50 yards um, with the whole world watching yeah. and shoot it with no margin of error, knowing that your team's future depends on it. You can't practice for it. You can't train for this. Even if they do penalties, yeah. it's not like that crucible of pressure. And the second, the second Sacco missed, that beautiful 19-year-old, I knew, yeah. I knew, I knew what was going to happen. That human darkness, the other England, yeah. the other England, the small-minded, racist, misogynist. I'm sorry, Jason, you got me a bit burnt up here. It's like the misogynist, <laughs> the, 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 the fearful England filled with hate spoke up. And unfortunately, they spoke bloody loudly. And up to now, they've yeah. had the last word. And that that is the, the football can take you to the France 98 wonder, transcendent football can take you to the most awful bloody moment. But we've got to hope that good wins out. Um, in other news, uh, the sporting world was wrapped, uh, watched with great interest as the Super League, the much, uh, the much ballyhooed, the much talked about, the in the works for many decades <laughs> Super League uh, rose majestically into the air before crashing uh, into the ground in the space of about 12 hours. <laughs> Again, this was this is a, this is a plan that has been in the works in various forms for decades, for a long time. Do you think we see it again? Do the do we think that they the people uh, and the the movers and shakers behind this, uh, the teams behind this, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Juventus, probably the the strongest proponents of this. Do we see them learn from what went wrong, and do we see them try and make this thing happen again? God, the way you're asking a question, you make it sound like January sixth, the coup, and everything. Like, uh, it's like, I'm like, I'm like, you're saying that. And by the way, this feels the Super League feels so bloody long ago. I'm like listening it to does, you talking about it? Oh my god, so much life has happened. I'd like when I think of the Super League, yeah. I'm like, oh, I remember that. I was just much younger me, a much happier me. You know, I had all my own hair, all my own teeth back then. But it was only a couple of months ago. Um, so, whew, what can I tell you about this thing? It, the, the thing that was fascinating about this, speaking to a couple of the owners, I mean, first of all, it was an American propelled plant. Football at the highest levels yes. is shape driven, oligarch driven, uh, infinite money. And as, you know, as wealthy as our American sports entrepreneurs are, your cronkies, um, 
of, of the LA Rams who own Arsenal Football Club. Um, your Glazers of Tampa Bay fame, who own Manchester Bloody United, and uh, of course Fenway Sports Group, the Boston Red Sox, who own Liverpool Football Club. As wealthy as they are, they look at the shakes, they look at the oligarchs, that infinite petrodollar replenished coffer, and they know they can't compete. And so this was their notion of uh, of essentially trying to build in some of the safeguards that you have in American sports, which are hilariously for a deeply capitalist society, America. Yeah. Our sports are so deeply regulated. What a draft, the yeah. salary cap. Eh? I mean, a rev yeah. share, everything here is actually yeah. incredibly, don't like to say it, but it's, what word would you use, Jason, to describe them? I mean, I, I would, I would, I would describe it fairly as socialism for extremely rich there people. There you go. Bernie Sanders is nodding along yes. as we socialism for extremely rich people. They're essentially safeguarding. They know it's a zero sum yeah. game here, and they were trying to enforce that same mentality. Um, and the other guys played along for different reasons that I won't bore your audience with. But the thing that's fascinating, I think, from an American fan base perspective. Um, rather than to get into the exact nitty gritty, is you're right, they planned this for bloody ages. And to be candid, I, I sp- spoke to one of them when it was going down and I was like, is this really a fait accompli? Because I was sickened. They were going to bury alive hundreds of clubs at the lower levels yeah. who were never going to be able to survive this. Employees who've worked for generations at clubs you've never, Grimsby, Leatherhead, tiny, tiny, like the Portland Sea Dogs of England. And... Um, and he's like, yes, this is going to happen. We've got, you know, uh, we've got PR agencies. Our PR agencies have PR agencies. We've hired every <laughs> lobbyist in the world. They, they thought of everything. It was like, I imagine this huge map where they were pushing like tanks and planes and stuff around the situation room of Europe. And the one thing, the one thing they never bloody planned for. They imagine, so in Liverpool, there's two teams. Liverpool, who are like the Yankees. There's the Mets of Liverpool, Everton. I support bloody Everton. And I know they imagine that Everton fans, when Liverpool joined the Super League, would howl in agony and pain. How were you ruining it? And they were going to laugh at that. They were going to say, you're just jealous because you're not in it. What they never thought about for a second was that their own fans, Liverpool fans, Arsenal fans, Manchester United fans, would be the ones who would rise up like peasant farmers with their agrarian equipment and storm their own grounds, stop their, you know, stop their own teams from taking to the field by preventing their buses from parking. And in terms of globalization and uh, and locality, the greatest tension facing these mega brands, because they are global brands, is that they have two audiences. They have the audience like you and me who love watching. We love getting up at 7.30 in the yeah. morning. We complain about it, but we love, hey, the Premier League's on. That's cool. Let's buy a shirt. Let's get a Spurs tattoo. Wicked, wicked. That is the future of football. But there's still the multi-generational family that travels with Spurs, goes every game, travels all over England. Yeah. They feel, and they the, the American owners underestimated their own stakeholders and how they deeply believe, not just in their own team, but in the whole system, their own tradition and their heritage. And that right now is the only handbrake uh, to prevent it from happening again. If they were not so shell-shocked, blindsided, a massive, massive blind spot, a terrible ownership decision, a just stakeholder who doesn't understand their own product. If they were not so blindsided, this would happen again in a heartbeat. I imagine it is the future. I hope uh, that it's way after um, my lifetime. 
but I, I have no doubt that it uh, that it will happen again for financial reasons. But next time they do, yeah. this is why it reminded me of January, January the sixth. Because when I listen to Crooked's other pods, you're always talking about how they'll come back smarter, more informed, more strategic. I imagine that 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 will be the case here. Okay, so before this. In full disclosure, I'm not a huge, huge soccer fan, but I played in high school and I know a little bit about it. But before we let then you go, you, Roger, you, know, you know about as much as me then. Okay, cool. Listen, I'm an Atlanta United all day fan, like oh, fan all day. You know, like I that's love, me all day. I love. But, but I'm a free agent when it comes to the Premier League. So oh. help me out. Let me know. Who should I be rooting for in the EPL? You got to let me know. I just Renee, coming Renee. from you. Renee, can I just tell you, Atlanta United is one of the joys. Of, I made a film about the African-American fans of Atlanta United for ESPN. Yeah. And I loved every single second. Like just the film began with um, with a couple of incredible human beings. Just they all had the same message. It was like they said, you know, I used to think that sport was where you hit it, punched it or drove it in from the five yard line like soccer. And they then, you know, had the old classic uh, derision of soccer. But that club, the culture, the fan culture, the fan first culture around that club, the, the distinctively singular grounded in Atlanta traditions that is so joyous and so um, unbelievably beautiful um, and meaningful. I, I I know the club is having a slightly uh, shaky time, teething problem at the moment, but my God, I have thought in lockdown, I miss America so much. I miss traveling around more than any city. Uh, Atlanta is the jewel that I cannot wait to get back to. So you're doing great with that club and that culture and that just that beautiful, beautiful, beautiful fan base that I miss something terrible. But you're asking me a question that I... Fear for your safety in the. I, I was. I was, I was, I was, I was, I was Maybe I was, the answer is no answer. No, Renee, I, I just want to be honest because you seem like an incredible human being and I care for you. And I was on. I was on. I was on Tommy Vita's podcast. God love him. I, I'm also very fond. Yes. I'm also super fond of that human being. He just seems to be so bloody earnest and joyous and deeply emotionally intelligent and there's his flip question he said to me at the end he's like what club should i support and he told me who he does cheer for here and all that crap i live for everton football club i believe you know i've made i have four kids i've made them all everton fans it was really hard because americans love winners and everton don't win a lot and my wife's like, what the hell are you doing making them Everton fans? And I'm like, I was like, she's like, why would you do that? You made them Chicago Bears fans and Everton fans. And I'm like, I was like, it's great. Life is hard. Life is challenging. Life is filled with darkness. If you're an Everton fan, you know that. And you also know when the moments of joy come around, you celebrate them, you revel in them, you dance mm. as if you're at your own kid's wedding, which is how I ultimately sports is important for life. And I would recommend this to you. And I hope, I really do hope, Renee, that we can share this journey together. But I'm telling you this because Tommy goes and takes this advice and on Twitter starts being like, hey, I'm Everton. Um, who do we hate? Who do, who do we love? Who do we hate? And I'm like, and I'm watching him and he's like, who do I, you know, 
he's like getting into it on Twitter and I'm like, Tommy, I love you for your own sake. Yeah, be careful. Sake, I don't know what, I love your joy. I love the, how into it you are. Like uh, people are sending him jerseys and all that kind of thing. And he's like all in now. I would not be surprised if next time I go to LA, I see Tommy and he's not got Everton and gangster uh, crit written around his belly button. But I'm just saying, just oh my gosh. A, a, engage, I would engage with it with slightly more care than, than Tommy V is engaging with okay. it. I, I'm worried I, for Tommy V. That. I'll take that. And one last question. Notting Hill is my favorite movie, like one of my favorite movies of why, all why time. Is that? Why is that, Renee? Uh, Because I love rom-coms. I love yeah. Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant. You can't go wrong mm. with him. I love his accent and I love the storytelling of regular human, everyday human meets superstar, what happens. That's why it's my favorite. I watch it all the time. But do people in England actually like the movie? I have to ask because I just, God. I'm curious. You said you're, you're asking me to speak on behalf of a nation. Uh, the, also, the whole nation, Roger. Yeah, yes, yeah. it's all you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like, like I, this is what it feels like to be the queen, where you get to just like address the rest of the. Uh, but the real the reality is, the one true queen is Tracy Chapman. So I don't actually believe in Queen Elizabeth. So like I do want to move away from speaking on behalf of the entire nation. Uh, yeah, I was here when that movie came out. Um, and so I think Tom, I think um, Hugh Grant has gone through like the, the in England, and this is in my book, we don't, you know, there's a thing that says, and this is another thing about America that did draw me to originally. If you give your average English person the choice between their own success and your failure, they'll choose your failure every single time. <laughs> So I think they've gone through a cycle with Hugh Grant. I think, I think, I'm not 100% yeah. sure, but I think like they liked him to begin with, charmish, rakish rogue. Um, and then he got a bit big and then they decided to hate him and he helped them. He did help wow. them hate him. He did and help, I, I think he. I think they hated him, but I think he's kind of, I think he's gone through that hate. And then if you, if you, um, to paraphrase um, Mother Teresa about she talked about in life you got to love and love until you can until you reach that point where you can't love anymore. In England, if you hate somebody and hate them until you can't hate them anymore, they actually emerge. <laughs> they actually emerge the other side, and we're like, oh, oh you're not so bad. I think he's. I think he's come back. So I imagine their love of that movie um, kind of waxes and wanes. But I will say, I will say, Julia Roberts is forever, right? Forever, forever. forever. Am I alone in that? It's, it's not It's not up for debate. That's why I had, like, I thought this, this was a home run. I didn't expect that type of answer. I thought that this had to be a home run in England. So I understand now. To me, you are perfect and my wasted heart would love you. I'm just yeah. a girl standing in front of a guy asking him to love you. I love all of those rom-coms. So, yeah, that's all I, so, like, so, so I had to find uh, All I will tell you, Renee, just love Everton Football Club. If you love Everton Football Club, by the end of this... <laughs> Half as much as you love four weddings and a funeral. And there'll be a lot of funerals, unfortunately, with Everton Football Club. If you love Everton Football Club half as much as you love those rom-coms, then this has been this has been probably a life-changing um, podcast for one, of, for one of us. He's an author, broadcaster, producer, and the co-host of Men in Blazers. His new book, Reborn in the USA, an Englishman's love letter to his chosen home, is available now. Roger Bennett, thank you for joining oh, us. Oh, Renee and Jason, honestly, it's been a total joy to you, to the success of your podcast, to both of your health, happiness, you so courage. Thank you, Roger. You know what that sound means. It's time for buzzer beaters where we talk about the stories and the things that we didn't cover in the show because of time. Renee, what do you have? 
All right, so listen, this week starts the opening performances. It's not opening night, but Broadway is back, baby. And I'm so excited. Yeah. They're the the Broadway play that I'm a producer on is called The Passover. People might know oh. it because Spike Lee directed the movie of The Passover. But, you know, Antoinette, and I wanted to just say this because she did a little unique thing. I actually just came from New York and got to go to the theater and see some stuff. So I'm really excited for people to see it. But Antoinette had just a really cool statement that she said. And she said, I want to offer an ending that will help heal people and will bring joy and beauty and laughter and a little bit of grace and a little bit of Afrofuturism to an, any audience member, regardless of their race. So this is one of those in-your-face type of Broadway plays that if you know the movie that was directed by Spike Lee, it's just taken from that and building on it. August 4th is when it starts. Performances start August 4th at the August Wilson Theater in New York on Broadway. Check it out, people. We have to support the art, so I'm excited that that's coming back. That's awesome. Uh, I'm going to talk about, you know, it's I had a hectic week last week, a lot of work, working late hours. Uh, I didn't have a lot of breaks. But when I used, had those breaks, I wanted to use them efficiently to feel like I was traveling, to feel like I was moving around. Uh, Flight Simulator, the video game, has finally been released for Xbox. And this game, I don't even know how they did this. I think they used like real-time satellite data. Anyway, like I flew over my mom's house. My mom's what? house is in this game. My mom's house is in the game. Like, you can put in an address, find the coordinates, find your apartment building, the place where you work, the, you know, your uncle's house, whatever. And I, more likely than not, it is there. My mom's house is in it. Like, uh, and it looks like my mom's house. I flew over my apartment. It's in the game. I flew, like, Jason, I've been flying sorry, over my friend's house. This feels concerning. I feel like privacy. <laughs> I don't know. I feel it's like. It's my mom's house. Is my mom's house, and I was very careful. I streamed the game the other day, and I was very careful not to fly over anything that is personal to me. I just flew, like from uh, I think I flew from uh, from Paris to to London, but it is. I just set it on autopilot, and I'll just fly over a landscape, and that's it. And I'll just work while I, I look over and just watch the little plane that I'm flying, and it's very what? calming. That's are there crazy. privacy issues that I think are that arise from this video game? Yes. Yes, I think there <laughs> definitely are. Could you, for instance, if you were like a bad person, could you scout a neighborhood where you were going to do bad stuff? Yes. See, I think that you could definitely do that. Yeah. I think you could do that. That said, if you were a good person, and I know there are a lot of good people out there, it's a very calming uh, game uh, and wow. very fun to play. If you're a bad person, just don't listen to what I just said. Just ignore everything I'm I just scared. said and don't listen to it. And stop listening to this. I'm uh, scared. <laughs> well, that's it for us. Follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever yep. you get your podcasts. And don't forget, subscribe to Take Line Show on YouTube for exclusive video clips from this episode, plus my digital series, All Caps NBA. All Caps! Every Friday. Check it out. Goodbye. Let's go! Take Line is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Carlton Gillespie and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Gerard. Our contributing producers are Caroline Reston, Elijah Cohn, and Jason Gallagher. Engineering, editing, and sound design by Sarah Gibble-Laska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean... 
every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 